0: All right, well we're recording. Welcome everybody to, this, uh, to today's DevShop Marketing Briefing. Hi Ted, good to see you. Um, I'm here with Reuven Lerner, who has graciously agreed to spend some time telling you guys about how to get started in technical training. I am, I have to put my biases on the table. Uh, I'm kind of enthusiastic about the idea of people who do some kind of client services in the world of technology moving into technical training because I think it's, it, it's a nice, maybe it, for some folks, a nice complement to the type of revenue they get from client work. Client work, I think when compared to technical training is a little bit unpredictable. So I like the relative predictability, um, the relative stability of having that extra way of making money through training. Um, I always find it very personally satisfying to help people in that way by helping them gain some new ability or some new insight. Not everybody has, I think, that person that personality that's wired to enjoy training. But if you do, I think you'd be a fool to ignore the possibilities that it presents for your business. If you like the idea of getting into technical training, you probably face some questions: How do I get started? How do I find clients that need training rather than need me to build something for them? Questions like that. Those are very common questions, and I'm hoping that Reuven is going to be the answer to some of those questions, or at least help you understand how to think about solving those questions for yourself. So that's why I wanted Reuven to come, is not like to just sort of uh, evangelize for technical training, although he may do a little bit of that. But also to speak very practically about how, how you can transition into getting some of that work, maybe just part-time, maybe full-time, you know, maybe as a, a sort of blended services model or maybe as your your main thing. I don't know. So, Reuven, um, I, I feel like I know very well in some ways and not well in other ways. He and I are um, co-panelists on the Freelancer Show. Reuven kind of holds holds down the, the fourth there, um, <laughs> And um, so we know each other through that, and I've just I've seen Reuven move from generalist, self-employed software developer, might be the best description, into developing a really strong um, business. I think anyway uh, around delivering training. So he's made that transition. That's why I think he's the perfect person to give this presentation. So here he is, Reuven Lerner. Uh, Reuven, the floor is yours. Um, I just before we get started, I just want to say folks, if you have questions, that's awesome. Drop them in the chat window as a way to kind of build up a backlog of questions for Reuven. And then when he's done with this presentation, we'll go through whatever questions I've accumulated. And I'll also uh, almost certainly have some of my own to add. Okay. So Reuven, the floor right. is yours. I'm going to uh, just mute myself uh, and take it away.
1: Excellent. Thanks, Philip. Hi everyone, uh, for, for me it's good evening. I don't know what time of day or night it is for you. Uh, I'm really happy to be here and see so many people. Um, so let me sort of describe to you um, what's happened to me over the last decade or so. Um, just so you know, like I've, I've been self-employed since 1995. Um, as you can hear from my accent, I grew up in the US. I moved to Israel at the age of 25 in 95. Um, and at that time I sort of figured, okay, I'm gonna give consulting a try. I honestly had no idea what consultants did. I just knew this was a way to sort of make more money. You could do it in software. And I figured I had this nice safety net that at that time the Israeli high-tech economy was starting to expand. The worst case scenario was I would get a real job. Um, And I was especially lucky that my employers at the time, at Time Warner in New York, excuse me, they said, oh, you think of consulting? We'll be your first clients when you get to Israel. So I arrived here with a nice uh, cushy client that I could rely on for some work. And things have had all sorts of ups and downs in my career. I can tell you that, though, whereas, say, even 10 years ago, 15 years into my consulting work, I was mostly doing development. I was saying to people, um, I was literally saying to people, I will use lots of different kinds of languages and lots of different kinds of technologies to help you because I want to help you. And really, I'll learn it all because I can do all sorts of things to you. And I was really struggling to sometimes, like some months were gangbusters and some months were bad. Very strong, like, uh, you know, feast or famine. Um, Fast forward for for today. Um, I'm now making way, way, way more money than I did back then. I am booked, I kid you not, every day through October 2018. Um, I mean, there's some holes in there. Um, But they're on purpose, like the summer of next year where I haven't scheduled things yet so we can figure out when my kids are going to be in camp and scouts and we'll do family vacations and so forth. Um, So literally when a company calls me up now, I say, well, either someone will cancel or I can schedule in for October, November of next year. Um, And there's sort of a stunned silence on the phone. But you know what? That stunned silence was mine for a long time when this started happening to me. And companies are willing to pay. They're willing to pay in advance. And I become so much more specialized than I was back then. That if back then I would say, whatever language, I'll learn it, whatever technology, I'll learn it. Um, I am now known as, at least in Israel and certain companies, um, elsewhere as well, as like the Python training guy. Um, you want to do Python, you want to do intro, you want to do advanced, you want to do data science in Python, or things that relate to that, that is my thing. Um, and it has been a sea change for my work, a sea change in my life, um, greater satisfaction, greater income, greater predictability. It's basically been greater on all fronts. Um, And this is all due to the fact that I have made a transition to training. I would say at this point, 95% of my work is training, some some percentage like that. In a given month, well, this week, let's take this week, for instance, I taught one day at Arm, and I taught four days of virtual class online for Cisco in Europe. Um, and I'm basically booked like five days a week. I go out and I teach eight hours a day. Now, not everyone wants to do that. Not everyone can do that. Not everyone's as insane as I am to do that. Um, but the market is there in many, many technologies. And it takes time to transition into it. It takes time to do it. But it's extremely satisfying both as a business and personally. Um, just a sort of, I'll, I'll tell you, like it's not unusual for me to then have repeat sales, and I'll talk about this more in a little bit to clients. And when I'm at the cafeteria, or even if I'm just sort of hanging around, there, someone will come up to me and say, "Reuven, I took your class two months ago, and it changed the way that I'm able to do my work. Right? Like it doesn't get better than that. So, in many ways, I see training as the ultimate productized consulting. Right? A lot of people throw around this term productized consulting. What does it mean? It means basically that instead of calling someone up, like calling consultant. And negotiating over the scope and the scale and the payment and the timing and everything—it's an off-the-shelf sort of product. So when people call me and they say, "I want to have a Python course," um, so first of all, they—they're calling me because they want a Python course, and I say to them, "Okay, well, I have the following courses: I have Intro, I have Advanced, I have—and I can list the ones that I have—and they then are taking a product off the shelf and buying it. Now, there's always going to be some customization although they think there's more than there really is because typically they'll say, well, we really need X and Y and Z. And I'll say, well, you know what? I already cover X and Y and Z. Why do you need it? And they'll say, oh, uh, you're right. We don't need it. And thus we're, we're back to square one with the productized consulting. Um, so it means I then have very predictable products that I'm offering. It means I can improve those products. And as I improve them, then I'm basically just improving the offering. Like It's like new and improved breakfast cereal, except it you know, has a higher price point. I am no longer dealing with late night calls from clients saying that their software is buggy. I am no longer worried about, oh my God, they have a release coming out. What am I going to do? I show up in the morning, I teach, I finish teaching, I come home. Now I tend to work all sorts of crazy hours, as I mentioned before we started recording, um, but that's my business, my nonsense, my craziness. If I wanted to, I could just work you know nine to five each day and do training or nine to five, two days a week and do training. And that's up to me you will find that as you train, you get better and better each time. So it doesn't mean you did a bad job the first time and a fantastic job the 10th time. Um, I often make the analogy to stand-up comedians, where, or like a one-man play, where you go and you give your act and you see the reactions and you adjust, and the next time you improve the act. And so over time, it's getting better and better. And I know for a fact that how I teach and what I teach is better now than it was a year ago, which means that people are more likely to be satisfied more likely to recommend me. And indeed, one of the great things about training is you have lots of upsells, lots of repeat sales. If a company likes what you do, well, they probably have more employees and they're going to want you to do it again and again and again. Um, And they'll call you back and they'll say, do you have any other courses you can offer for us? So I started with Intro Python with many companies and then they wanted another course. So I developed Advanced Python. And then I found that Intro Python was really too advanced for some people because they didn't have a programming background. So I gave them intro to Python for non-programmers. And then I found many people were coming for data science and you know, analytics. So I created data science and machine learning in Python. And I found that people want to do text processing. So I have regular expressions. And then I have you know, I have at least two or three other courses also, one for system administrators and so forth, that sort of grew out of this constellation. Um, which also demonstrates something that Philip often says, which is, if you specialize, aren't you going to be bored? Not at all. I mean, maybe I'm teaching Python day in and day out, but I'm always learning new things, I'm always finding new ways to teach, new ways to explain things, new needs that people have that I can service, um, and they are willing to pay for it. And you get this incredible feeling of you're helping people, you're helping companies, and that is why they are bringing you in, right? So so what is the business motivation for them doing training, right? In some places, it's just seen as like a nice perk they're gonna give to people, but companies are not into giving nice perks. like. Maybe if it's coffee, maybe if it's like, you know, fruit or cookies, but when they bring someone in to do training, it's an expensive investment the company is making and they're making it because they see a large return on their investment, a large ROI. So if you're doing training, you're doing it, they're bringing you in because they want to either cut their costs or they want to improve their profits. Um, and one of the ways they do that is by retaining people right? Engineers are people are the most expensive thing that many companies have nowadays. And if someone leaves, they're taking knowledge, it's going to take time to find a new person, they're going to have to pay a placement agency and so forth. So if they can get that person to stay, that's great. So by giving them training, that person says, oh, well, I'll I'll stick around. And by giving them training that's helpful to the company, then the company becomes more profitable and keeps someone around. It's a win on all fronts. Really, everyone is happy. And so the person who I think about as my actual customer in companies, it is not the person sitting in my classroom. They're the people I want to satisfy, right? They're the people I want to teach. I want them to learn. But at the end of the day, the person who really determines if I succeeded or failed, and if I return or not, is the person I call the training manager. And there's so, so, so many ways to describe these people um, it can sometimes be like an actual training manager or head of you know development, personal development. It can be a VP of human uh, resources. It can be a chief operations person. Every company has a different title or a different slice of this title for doing this. Um, one company I work with a lot, they have a like a training intern, someone who's doing a master's degree in this sort of thing so they can get someone cheap. And she is my contact and she's there for two years. I know that another eight months she's gone and I'll have to deal with someone else. But for now, that's fine. That is my customer. That is the person to satisfy because if they're happy, they'll invite me back. They'll let me upsell and so forth. So these people are very powerful in terms of training, not only because they decide if you continue, but they are the gatekeepers. They decide who comes in. And I think of them as investment managers. They're basically given a pile of money by the company and told, make our people more effective, make them more satisfied, make the company better. And so they're investing. They're investing in this money in training. Um, and so they're going to look for the biggest bang for the buck. And so, first of all, if you're offering something that will improve their company, and typically, I mean, I'm coming from a development background. So that's going to be, you know, software techniques or skills or technology. So, again, I teach Python. I mean, I do some Ruby, some Postgres, but really nowadays it's almost all Python. And these companies are saying, hmm, we are using lots of Python. Our people are not that good at it let's give them a boost let's get them to learn it faster than they could learn themselves and be on the same line and have a common language that's worth a lot to our company and so because it's worth a lot to the company companies are willing to spend a lot and when i say that the investment manager has this pool of money to invest they are investing a lot now i mean in israel where i live and work most of the time the training budgets are relatively small so i get so just to give you sort of a ballpark figure, I get around $1,600, $1,800 a day for, for teaching here. That is more than I get when I go to China, but I just really like going to China, so yeah, that's like my, my, my thing. But in Europe and the US, it is not unusual to get five or $6,000 per day for training. And you multiply that by, say, a four-day course, and you have one client ask for three courses a year, now we're talking real money. Right Now, part of the thing is, part of the reason why companies are willing to spend so much is because they see the big ROI. But part of the reason is that most of the people they're dealing with, most of the, the trainers they're dealing with are not the actual company. right? So part of my profit here is that I've folded training company and trainer into one package. Whereas a lot of people work for a training company and then that money has to be split. So this is really nice and lucrative. right? This is fun you are not up late nights worrying about bugs. This is the life, right? Well, yes, but how do you get in, right? Like this is like a, an exclusive club or it seems to be an exclusive club. How do you get in? And what are some ways to sort of think about getting into, a, getting into training and things you can think about for yourself? So first of all, you have to enjoy the sort of thing. I mean, Philip alluded to this a little bit earlier. Not everyone enjoys getting up in front of a group um, and teaching them things, either because some people just hate teaching some people hate speaking in front of groups. Some people hate repeating the same thing. Like, I mean, my family knows that I, I have lots of stories. I tell lots of stories. And my wife says to me all the time, you tell stories exactly the same way every time. And I'm thinking to be, okay, well maybe that's really annoying as a husband, but it's really great advantage as a trainer. Like I know when I'm gonna tell the story about my uncle who ripped off his clients and then ripped off the family. Uh, true story. I am gonna tell who lives in Thailand now who is not allowed back in the U.S great story. Anyway, I I like, I I know what I'm going to tell the story about, you know, the guy with the bad license plates, and these fit into my training in certain ways, and I've honed them over time because I've seen the reactions from people, and I said, like a stand-up comic, right, I'm going to sense the reactions and try to adjust it accordingly. So this is not for everyone, and some people are just bad at explaining things. Um, I mean, I, I did a PhD, uh, f- other, another long story, another long, uh, long uh, piece of my life, but I did a PhD in what's called learning sciences, which is a combination of computer science and cognitive science and design for educational work. Um, I was in like the nerd research group. So, so like we were doing software stuff, um, but it was all related to education. And one of the things we learned in, in grad school was, there's a difference between content knowledge and pedagogical content knowledge. You can be the world's greatest authority on a technology, and stink to high heaven at explaining it. And indeed, that describes probably some of your university professors. That describes some of the uber nerds that you know. They might be really, really smart. This is not a reflection of their smartness. They don't know how to translate that information into something that other people like laymen will understand or newcomers will understand. And moreover, they don't care. Um, Like, it's just not an interest to them. So you have to be interested in that, you have to be interested always in, like, what are new ways to explain things, better ways to explain things. I'm constantly trying to think of new metaphors that I can use that will make things more understandable. And to me, that's a, a fun challenge. How can I take super complex technologies and describe them in a way that people can latch on to say, oh, I get it, and then start to use them in their work and become more effective? And so it's a constant thing to do. Again, not everyone is interested in that. But if you're interested in talking to people, if you're interested in teaching them, if you're interested in repeating yourself, um... It's, it's a, great, a great, great sort of career to get into. And another thing is, it's as ex, uh, sort of flexible as you want. So let's say you're doing software consulting day to day, and you say, you know, I'm gonna try this training thing. There is no trainer police out there that's gonna say, you must train 10 days a month. You can do it two days a month, you can do it 10 days a month, and if you like it, you do more, if you dislike it, you do less, right? It's, it, there is a, a sort of threshold to get into this market and teach yourself how to do it and work on courses, But once you've passed the threshold, like now my intro Python course is done. I mean, I make minor adjustments every year, but like, yeah, I can just do it. And if I want to do it once a year, 10 times a year, 20 times a year, it's totally up to me. Well, you know, and my clients in the market. So the biggest question that people have is how do I break into this? Like, like, okay, let's say I am the world's expert in technology X And I know that there are companies that are using Technology X, and I know that they're having terrible trouble finding employees because everyone they find is a a numbskull when it comes to Technology X. And if only I could teach them Technology X better, things would be great at the company. So how do you go from you knowing lots about that to you teaching at a company and then inviting you back? It is not a short road, all right? And and I've begun to understand that over time because basically there are few hurdles you have to get over. One is you have to actually produce a course and you don't have to do that in advance necessarily, but that is work. I would estimate, so, so the latest course I've developed is data science and machine learning. And it's by far the most challenging course I've ever developed because the subject that I don't do day to day, that I'm really interested in, but that I'm always like trying to get ahead and there's just like a torrent of information to learn. I would say I spend at least three or four days preparing each day of the course that I, um, that, I, that I when I gave it the first time so like it's a, it was a two-day course so I probably spent three or four days preparing the first day three or four days preparing the second day I we gave the course it was terrible <laughs> and so I spent another three to four days developing not only improving those first two days but developing a third day I now feel comfortable and confident that the third day is good also Not stellar, but good. I've given the course about 20 times now. I feel like it's good. I've now said I'm gonna expand the course to a fourth day because people are complaining there's not enough machine learning in there. So now I'm gonna spend days preparing that fourth day as well. Once that's done, I'm gonna declare it sort of baked and done. And that's just a matter of tweaking the examples. But that's like, what did I describe? A month at least of constant work. And that's ignoring the fact that the first Ten times, twenty times, I've worked on this course. Every time after I did it, I would sort of look over and improve, and see where people had questions and how can I anticipate questions. So there's definitely an upfront investment you'll have to make in creating the course, and part of that creation is understanding what questions do people have. Okay, so let's assume you have a course all packaged and ready, which is not an easy assumption to make. But let's say it's all ready to go. How do you get into companies? Like, how do you call, what you're gonna call up a company and say, Hi, I offer this course. Are you interested in it? The answer is, I used to think so. And I'm very skeptical of that now. And the reason is that these training managers, they go like all of us do with well-known brands. So, and that means either well-known to them or well-known in the marketplace. So the 900 pound gorilla in training in Israel is a company called John Bryce. Um, By the way, funny story, they call themselves John Bryce because back when they started, no one believed that anyone in Israel knew anything about technology. And thus they were like, we gotta pick the most non-Israeli name we can, and then people will trust us to do training. You know, Fast forward 20, 30 years, and yeah, that's a joke. Um, in any event, so John Bryce is a 900 pound gorilla. You want training in X, you call up John Bryce, and they will charge you through the nose to do training, and they will pay their trainers very little. So one good way to get into the training world is to go through a training company. They deal with all the marketing, they deal with all the logistics, the downside, they take most of the money. <laughs> so that five, $6,000 a day that I mentioned, yeah, they will be taking that and they'll pay you $1,600, $1,800 a day, which is, by the way, not a bad living, right? It's not bad at all. It's not the you know, you know, swimming in piles of dollar bills money, but, um, but it's you know, not bad at all. The real problem with those training companies, though, is they will sign you on a non-compete, meaning let's say you do training for them at HP you are not allowed to approach HP and do training for them. Now, they do this because they're not stupid, right? They realize that people who want to get into training and don't have the marketing chops, who don't have the experience, who don't have the connections, are going to go through a training company, right? And then they figure, aha, after a year or two, I'll just break off from them and I'll you know, take all these clients. So they sign you on the non-compete. Um, some of them are more draconian than others. If you're interested in going this way, like you should double check how long they're going to hold you to it and how they do it. I, I had one training company. I, I now go directly to everyone I deal with um, except in China where I go through a training company. And that's just because um, like dealing with the Chinese market is unusual and different and they're on the ground and so forth. So, I mean, they wanted to sign me. I think it was like three years, I can't work for any of their clients. And I was like, wait, wait, (laughs) it doesn't matter if I taught there or not. You mean if you have them as a client, if if they've ever paid you money, I can't work for them for three years. And they said, yes. Um, We negotiated that down a lot, (laughs) a lot. So by the way, anytime someone says to you, this is our standard contract, that is like the red lights going off saying you can negotiate on this. Um, So just like you should realize like standard contract is like the most laughable phrase ever. So you can, if you want, go through a training company and there are people of very nice careers going through training companies. If you're not interested in marketing yourself, if you're not trying to break in, if you're nervous about it, go to a training company and they will give you basically as much work as you want because they'll fly you around to different countries, to different cities, teaching whatever it is that you, that you know. Um, they'll expect you most of the time to have your own material, they'll expect you most of the time to have your own slides, they'll expect you to have your own sort of stuff that you do. Um, but if you do that, so you make the investment in the course, you don't have to make the investment in the marketing. But let's say you want to do the marketing, you want the money, you want the cachet, you want, it's like, it's not very nice, right? It was very nice when six months ago, I get a call from IBM saying, hi, we've heard you do Python training, we'd like you to do it. Like, come on, I never expected that would happen, and yet it did. So how can you then move into the direct market? And that's a tough nut to crack. And that's because if you call these training managers, as I mentioned, they have their brands they know, and they're not interested in hearing from you know, Joe Schmo. by the way, I also teach JavaScript, right? right? And they're like, come on, we have 10 companies we work with that teach JavaScript. So my advice to people is get in through the back door, meaning you want someone on the inside to go to the training manager and say, Joe Schmo is the guy we want um, to do training in JavaScript. Right? And the training manager will say, oh, it's interesting you say that, let's have a phone call. And that phone call, Right? So you'll get a call at some point from the training manager said, saying someone on my team has heard or someone in my company has heard or from that technical person. So, okay, how do you get the technical person to convince the training manager that you actually are the right person? And my, my feeling is you want to make it very clear that you do training and you do training well. So how do you do that? You do that by training. Okay, very circular, right? Chicken and egg. Well, you do it by doing webinars, Right, if you do even free webinars online, you're gonna attract people and they're gonna find out, oh, this guy actually can train. Moreover, you then have videos that you can store and you can show to people, look, this is how I train. Wouldn't you like wouldn't you like this in your company? Number two, you go to meetups and user group meetings. They are always desperate for people to talk there. You go there, you give a presentation, and don't forget to tell them you do training. This this seems like really elementary and obvious, but it's not. Um like I can't tell you how many times I I, I get up to like, uh, you know I give a course and sometimes, and I pepper my courses with stories about all my consulting clients. Someone literally came to me after one of those courses and said, so do you do consulting also? Because we could really use your help. I'm thinking, why would I tell all these stories about clients if I didn't have clients? So the answer is yes, I have clients. So the, the flip side is when you are giving a presentation, tell them, yes, I do training. So the start of your talk, you just say, so, hi, you know, my name is Reuven. I do training uh, in Python, and today I want to show you one specific thing that I find a lot of my training students have an issue with, which is blah, 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 right? You're not going to beat them over the head with a big stick saying, I do training. You're going to make it very clear, but very subtle, and you can pepper your talk in a few places with, oh, and here's a problem that some of my training students have. And at the end, you can say, you know, thanks for your attention. If you have any questions about me or about the training that I can offer, I'd be happy to talk to you. Or I think it's Philip who taught me this technique, which I haven't used yet, but it's really smart. Like at the end of a talk, you give a URL where people just like click into their phones, like a small one, and that gives you them as a lead and they can download stuff. And in that download, you can say, I do training. You want people to say, associate training in Technology X with you so that right after your talk or when they get back to work the next day, or six months later, and it really can take that long, someone at the office is gonna say, hey, we could really use training in Git, and someone else says, I know, we should contact blah, 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 right? That person gave a talk about Git, and they were great, and I would really like to invite them. Now, this is a long game you have to play then, because getting into these companies, then you're requiring sort of a few years to attach. A shorter way to do that is to talk to people you know in the company. Right, if you have contacts at a company, I was just talking to someone uh, uh, over the last few months who uh, says he has contacts in many banks where he lives. Like He lives in an area with a lot of large banking companies and he has a lot of contacts there. And he said, so he can talk to people there um, and they can get him in. That is great. Definitely do that. Because what you want is, again, someone technical on the inside to say to the training manager, you want Joe Schmo to come in and do training, or at least we should have a conversation. Now they might say, by the way, Well, we already have someone who teaches Python, right? So I I do a lot of uh, training for Cisco. um, And I I spoke with the training manager for Cisco in the US. And by the way, it's shocking, shocking to me that a company as large as Cisco has basically two people I have to deal with, right? They have the training manager for North America and the training manager for not North America. If I satisfy those two people, they are delighted and they keep buying. If I don't satisfy them, uh, bad news. (laughs) So make them happy. How do you make them happy, by the way? by getting very high scores at the end of your course. Um, There's always gonna be a questionnaire. The questionnaire is crucial, and it's crucial in multiple ways. High scores mean they invite you back, and the feedback your students give, what was good, what was bad, you fold that into what you do next time around, and you try to improve it even more. So anyway, like I I started talking to the training manager uh, at Cisco for US, and she said basically, well, I really don't need Python, because I have plenty of Python courses but this Python for non-programmers you teach, huh, we don't have anything that's like that. And this Python data science and machine learning course, well that we have infinite demand for. So you know what, so I don't teach my Python fundamentals course for Cisco in the US. Boo hoo hoo, they're only asking me for as many weeks as I can give them to teach the other course online. All right? not so terrible, not so terrible at all. The bottom line is you want sort of to get in through the back door and I think that's the most effective. One of the nice things that I found is people in high tech move around, and they move around a lot. Every year or two people find a new job. So imagine if I teach, let's, let's call it 30 courses a year, and let's assume there are 10 to 20 people in each of those courses. Right, so it's between 300, and, uh, does that math work out? I don't know, like 200 400 people uh, per year. Let's call it a few hundred people a year, because like, I'm a computer person, so my math skills are bad. A few hundred people a year are in my courses. Let's assume half of them each year go to new jobs. That means that over time, more and more places are going to be populated with people, some percentage of whom are going to remember me and going to recommend me to their bosses. And that has definitely happened. So the longer you're in the training game and the longer you are specializing in training, and not just, oh, yeah, training is one of the things I do, like, they will identify you with that. And the moment there's a training need, they will call you up. Um, and it's just like, amazing to me the number of places that keep calling me up now, not because I ever worked with them, but because one of their employees worked at a previous place. So you, you want to sort of get in, um, by the way, I spoke with a training manager once and I asked her this, what happens if someone cold calls you? What will you think? She sort of rolled her eyes and said, well, not so great. So I said, okay, let's say someone wants to bring in a training. Where's a good place to meet them? She said, well, they should go to the training conferences I go to, the human resources conferences I go to because there I'm expecting to be pitched by training companies. Um, and if you're an individual, you're still a training company. She said, give me stuff in writing. Now I had not done this right, so I can't vouch for it per se, but it seemed really logical that these HR people, these training people go to conferences looking for, they're on the prowl for training options. And if you're there and you have a booklet that looks nice and you put it in their hands, they will review it later on and hopefully maybe get back to you. Is this a definite win? I don't know, but like she, she does this and I don't, so fine. Um, so you wanna get, like, let me talk a little bit about pricing as well and then I think I'll, we'll just sort of transition into a Q&A. So I already talked a little bit about the money, but let me break it down a little more also. There are two basic ways to charge for courses. One is per day and one is per person. Um, I tend to prefer doing it per day. And I think it's partly a company uh, culture thing and partly a uh, country culture thing. So I like to do it per day because then I don't have to start counting heads. Um, And so I just say, this is the amount that I'll take per day. And I typically put a maximum, at least in Israel, I put a maximum of 16 people abroad I'm willing to do a few more, like 20 people because they're quieter than Israelis. And in China I'm willing to have like 30 people because they, they just don't ask questions. Um, which I'm not sure is good pedagogically pedagogically, but just like it's culturally a fact. So, um, so I'll basically say this price is good for up to X many people. And they can then choose how many people show up. They'll try to squeeze as many in as possible. Um, but almost always people will cancel. Now their department that's paying, their boss's head on the line if, if like not everyone shows up, um, but like, that's basically what I do. And then I say, and if it's over 16 people, then you'll pay such and such a penalty. Now, I've, I've been, I'm not really sure how much I like doing that. I'm trying to use it as a disincentive. I'm trying to tell them basically don't bring extra people. I actually had a problem just a few weeks ago with a company where they said, oh yes, we are going to you know, have 16 people and we, we might have a few more who will come in also. So on the first day, we passed around a piece of paper with everyone's names on it and there were 18 people. So I said, okay, I'm gonna charge you for 16 plus two like penalty people. She said, oh no, but like not everyone can make it to the next few sessions. And I said, okay, let, let's not play these games, right? Like, and so that was part of my, like, that's why charging per person can be a problem. That's why I prefer not to do it. But there are many companies where they say, that's just the way we do it. We're gonna bill per person. Um, that's where I came up with the $6,000 a day figure for the US. Um, because you can charge there about three hundred dollars per person per day. Assume a maximum class of twenty, and that's where you hit your number. Um, you will have to decide what's good for you, and you'll have to sort of negotiate it also with your clients as to how they want to pay and what sort of sort of, what sort of payments they want. Um, another nice thing about training is, unless you really, really, really screw it up, they're going to pay you, and they're going to pay you on time. Now, on time might be different things for different companies, but I mean, I, have, I I once taught a course, actually for Cisco, where it was just terrible. <laughs> like, like it just came off terribly, and I wish I could explain why. Maybe I was having a bad day. I was teaching online, like the technology was having a bad day. So they actually said to me, if you didn't get like good scores of the rest of the, your surveys, we would actually ask you to pay us back something, which was pretty horrifying to hear, quite frankly. I'd never heard anything like this before in my life. Um, but I think this might've been an idle threat to some degree, like unless it's really bad. Um, but typically they will pay you, they'll pay you on time, the money will arrive. And if you're teaching for people in the US or in Europe, then the quantity of money you, you receive, I mean, I don't know about you, but like, when I received, I did a course in Europe, it was $5,000 a day. So I got like, what was it, like $23,000 or something because it was you know, course plus travel. And I just sort of sat, sat staring at my bank account. um, not believing that a company really, like they said, it really happened. They had really paid me this much to teach the same thing that I do in Israel, the same thing online, but they do and they do it because they see an ROI. And let me just do the quick calculation for you, and then I think we'll switch to Q&A. Imagine you're, imagine you're at a company where the engineer makes $100,000 a year. Imagine we can make that engineer 10% more efficient, right? So that's, that's great. You're basically saving the company $10,000 a year from that one person. Now I have a classroom of 20 people like that. Right now, it's, you're not saving $10,000 a year, you're saving $200,000 a year for the company right? So for the company to save $200,000 a year, it's a pretty, pretty much a no brainer for them to spend $20,000 on, on a, a training. And that is their thinking. Now they might not be doing that calculation, right? I mean, they're not doing the exact one. They might say, maybe people will be 5% more efficient, 3% more efficient. Even then it's worth it for them to do it. And that's why they're doing it. Um, in addition to the perks, in addition to wanting to encourage people to say, in addition to all that other stuff. Um, so that's like, I would say training sort of in a nutshell overview, um, especially like how you can sort of break into it. Um, I'm sure there are many, many, many other things that I can address here. Um, I am very, very happy to stick around for a while. I think we allocated an hour. If it goes over an hour, mine too. But I mean, I, I don't know, maybe Phil has something else to do with his life. You never know. But um, <laughs> I'm very, very happy to answer questions and go into more detail on any of these subjects or others that I might've
0: missed. Awesome. Uh, Ruben, thank you. That was great. So I have questions. I'm hoping as we move through those, anybody, any additional questions folks have, you can drop in the chat window and I'll echo those to Reuben. We'll start with a question from from Josh before I get to my uh, considerable backlog of questions that I (laughs) came up with while you were talking. So Josh Robs asks, uh, any thoughts or recommendations for using products for base level training? By the way, Josh, if you want to, uh, you know, patch in your video and have some back and forth with Reuben and I, that would be just fine. What do you think about What's, that, Reuben?
1: So, what what do you mean by that? Oh, you mean like info products, like like books or other such things?
0: That's what I would guess. Uh, Josh, feel free to clarify if we're off base here. But um, yeah, how do you see maybe products fitting into this idea that you're going to? Help you know deliver training services. Do you, do you see a role for products? Are they sort of lead generation for your services, or are they, they complementary, or do they give you marketing reach, et cetera, et cetera?
1: So I'm increasingly convinced. Hi, Josh. I'm increasingly convinced that um, it's two different markets. And I could be totally wrong about that, but the, the training market is a B2B market, right? I'm a business, they're a business. And I mean, I have some books and I have some like training stuff that I do for individuals and there's been virtually no crossover between them. Um, indeed, indeed, I encourage everyone in my training classes to join my mailing list, my free mailing list to which I send mail once a week just about, about Python stuff. And it's done as an evergreen thing. So the person who joins today, I I just reached like message number 52. They are literally going to get a year of messages and I have to do nothing. Amazing. Um, So the thing is I encourage them to sign up and I sort of originally thought, well, maybe they'll want to buy stuff for me. A handful do, but it's not something I can really do that much. I did for a few months, maybe like two, three months. I did mention to my students, Hey, I also have this book. Um, I will give you a discount on the book. Um, And I got some very, very, like one comment in one survey, very nasty feedback on that, saying we just spent a fortune on on this guy's training. And here he comes, shilling his books also, how outrageous. And I was like, wow, I can totally see his point. So now if people ask me in class about my books, I'll talk to them. I sometimes mention them in my slides, but I figure if someone really cares, they're gonna join my mailing list and then they'll be bombarded with ads and then they can pick it up if they want. Um, I approached, someone gave me the idea of trying to do a site license for my books for Cisco or other big clients of mine, and that went over like a lead balloon. Um, I I really was sure they were gonna be excited by it, and it just went absolutely nowhere. Um, So I have heard of people who give their students free copies of their products. Um, I guess, like, I've never seen an incentive to do that. (laughs) Like, um, the good news is like, I'll tell two, two quick other things about this. So I was invited to teach at a company, I guess it was like three months ago, four months ago. And the, the course went great. Um, and at some point someone said, oh yeah, you should get on his mailing list. By the way, Reuven, that's how I knew, like, like that reminded me that you do training. Um, and so it brought, brought you here. So I don't think that was the spark that led me to be there. But I think when someone mentioned my name, this was like, as good as a recommendation because someone inside saw my work decided he liked my training and confirmed yeah we should give this guy a call
0: got it what do you think Josh any any follow up there look on the bottom is there's a there, we, there go. we go uh yeah my i guess my question was it seems like a big jump from free webinar to $6000 a day and i'll try and figure out what was in the middle
1: Oh, I see. Okay. So the, the reason to do the free webinar is, is not to make money. I've, 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 unless you have a different definition of free than I do. Um, so the, the reason to do the free webinar is multiple things. First of all, it gives you practice teaching your material. So um, I gave, before I did, especially my data science course, but also my regular expressions course, before I taught those courses, I gave free webinars with proportions of that material. I discovered what was rusty in giving it. And so I was able to make it better even before teaching the first time. So that was good news number one. Good news number two is it's a promo for your ability to teach. It means that someone who um, looks at your YouTube video or whatever will say, oh yeah, this guy can actually teach. And then they're willing to spend money on you coming and teaching more. Like if he was good in half an hour, imagine how well he would do in eight hours. Um, But it's not going to be like someone says, this is free, thus I'm going to pay for it. It's just like, it's, it's sort of like giving yourself a self-recommendation, as it were, or just a demonstration of your abilities.
0: Got it. Great. Thanks for, thanks for the question, Josh. Thank you. On that note, I'm, I'm kind of jumping around here in the log of questions, but James, who I'm trying to figure out what time it is in Finland, James, but... Uh, oh, hey it's man, earlier than for you're... me. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> it's 11.42 it, at it, night. <laughs> Oh, right. it's my same
1: time oh oh we're in the same time zone fantastic fantastic
0: <laughs> end of the um, day there so james why don't you kind of tag on because you had some follow-up about the webinar yeah I, I just wondered if you had any advice if you're in europe to get started so i've done some online training and webinars and, and kind of teaching and this kind of thing but i haven't done this corporate training that you're talking about in person if you're in Europe, like do do you recommend trying to get started like in your local country where you're at? Like like what kind of strategy do you have there?
1: So yeah, you definitely want to start local. Um because you know people and they know people and like the the moment so so there was a point a few years ago when I decided I wanted to like, just do training. I wanted to be known as doing training, even though I could potentially do other stuff. So I rebranded my website. I rebranded myself on LinkedIn. Everything said, I do training. And that changed everything, right? Because suddenly people said, oh, he's the training guy, the Python training guy, especially. And it started with people around me. So I think if you were to sort of rebrand yourself, then locally, people in Finland, you said, yeah, like people in Finland are going to be like, oh yeah, like James there, he does training in whatever it is. I think you're on like my list. I think we ex- corresponded a bit. I don't remember exactly what it was, sure. but like, yeah. they'll, 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 they'll like tag you as being that. And they also, having known you, they'll give you an in with different companies. Also, um, I have actually been trying to break into the European training market um, and I've been trying it from a number of different angles and I tried cold contacting people. It was a... Dismal flop. Um, and it could be, I mean, I tried in Belgium because I was like, well, maybe in Brussels, I see there are all these companies. I'll find out what companies are there and I'll contact them. Someone told me that Belgium, like, that's not the way they do business. And I think that just might be the way that a lot of countries do business. That basically you have to know their lingo, you have to know their culture. And for you to sort of say from Finland, you know, call someone in Spain, hey, we're both in Europe thus like they are going to laugh at you um of course. Perhaps, so so start locally and what might happen is you'll just get a better reputation be able to go cross border what might also happen is as was happening with with Cisco over the years they have some of these companies are multinationals and have branches and they will recommend you to their other branches elsewhere um i mean i just got a call from i do a lot of work with sandisk now western digital um, and they gave me a call, like the training manager there um, and I like have been working together for a while. She called me two days ago, three days ago and said, listen, we have a group in um, uh, Scotland and they really need to get training. Um, I know you do get training, even though you've never done it for us. Can you do that? And just the timing didn't work out. Like today, literally, she told me can't do it, which is sort of a bummer because some other course that's supposed to happen that week isn't happening. Oh, well. But like basically these multinationals, because they're branches, they will help you to to get out there more easily than you can do it yourself. You know, I had one other question. I know you talked a little bit about a webinar, like if, you know, for example, you're trying to start in Finland, like, like, how does a webinar play into that? Is that just to try and expand your reach and and get in front of the right kind of technical people? It's kind of teaching to the doers and then hoping that they kind of push you up the line? Kind of it's, it's everything. It's like both that, that people will view you and say, oh yeah, this guy does training. It's also for yourself to feel more comfortable presenting the material. You will feel as you're presenting, wow, topic A, I nailed it. Topic B, oh my God, I got to go back and retool that. And better do it a free webinar where like people can't complain about the price. Um, or you can edit the video to only include the good stuff uh, than to do it at a company where they're paying you. Um, how many companies will see your webinar and then invite you to train. I'm guessing the number is relatively small. Um but it, you can again you can sort of point it to a growing list of things and once you've given the webinar then you can go present at a user group meeting and there the people will be interested in the training uh for sure.
0: Sure. Okay, thank you. Sure. Thanks for the question James. So Ivan asks about payment. I was curious about this too. Um, can you get paid up front? Here's this question specifically. How often do you get paid ahead of time versus after? And in cases where you do get paid after, what's that you know, length of time before, you, before the money shows up? Um, and do you request a deposit up front?
1: So I am timid about this stuff. Mm-hmm. And thus I don't require, I don't expect payment up front. I don't expect a deposit up front. Um, maybe if I were more aggressive, I could ask for it and they would give it to me, but excuse me, But um, I haven't ever done that. Most companies in Israel, at least, pay what's called net plus, six, net plus 30 or net plus 60, which basically means, so like today is what, November 30th, so I sent out invoices to a bunch of companies today, that means I can expect to see that money on, uh, let's say it'll be December, January, I'll see it February 1st, if it's net plus 60. That is frustrating, that is annoying, um, trying to change them is like talking to the wall in my experience. They're just not, this is this is just the way they do business. And you got to live with it. Now there are exceptions. There are exceptions. So I had a company where I was teaching a four day course. And I should also mention scheduling. This is a little off topic, but like different countries have different cultures with scheduling. In Israel, they hate doing several days in a row. Hate, hate, hate it. They say, what? I'm going to take my people out of work for four days in a row? Are you crazy? They have work to do. Whereas elsewhere, they're like, what? Why would we spread it ac- across multiple weeks? Of course we wanna have concentrated learning. Hmm. So, so I was on like the third Sunday, Sunday is a regular work day in Israel, uh, our weekend is Friday, Saturday. So I was on the third Sunday of a four uh, day course and they said to me, so give us your payment information. I was like, oh, okay, fine. And they paid me literally before I had done the fourth, uh, fourth day. This was shocking to me. I did not <laughs> expect it in any way, shape or form, but I was clearly very happy. Another client, Um, paid me, like I sent them the invoice that evening and my invoices now have a PayPal link on them. They paid via PayPal. I mean, it's a multinational corporation. Why they were doing that, I don't know, but they did. But most companies are going to pay net plus 30, net plus 60. There's sometimes negotiating room. So there's one company I work with where, um, uh, I mean, James and other people who are in Europe might, might sort of identify with this more where there's something called a tax invoice where basically as soon as I send out this tax invoice, I owe the VAT, which is sort of like, American sales tax in some ways. Um, So basically what this company said was, you send us the tax invoice and then we'll pay you 60 days later. I was like, wait, wait, wait. That means I'm on the hook for the taxes 60 days before you pay me. So they said, well, what if we were to pay you in two weeks? I was like, oh, that's fine. So, (laughs) So basically someone somewhere in the accounting department made an exception for me in some computer system Heaven knows what permission they got for for it. And believe me, I tell no one else at this company that this is the case. Because if they were to find out, they would go and like get angry with this accounting person. So there is some flexibility, but don't expect a lot. And the thing is once you do a lot of it, then if everyone's paying net plus thirty, sixty, then like you just sort of, you, know, you just see the money later and it's like it sort of flows.
0: Okay. Okay. So upfront is rare or non-existent in your uh, experience?
1: In my experience, but you know, I'll tell you, there is an exception to that. And the exception is if you do um, uh, open enrollment courses. So if you say, I'm not going to a company, like everything I've talked about says, I go to company X, I teach subject Y. But if you say, hey everybody, I'm offering a course in subject X, it's gonna be in this place at this time, pay me, then you can have payment upfront. I have not done that so far because the logistics involved are massive. The risk is large, and so far, I've managed to fill all of my time uh, with companies. That said, this course that I was supposed to do in England later this, uh, or I guess in December, um, that was canceled, um, if nothing else shows up that week, I'm tempted to actually try an open enrollment course for the first time and see how it Mm -hmm. goes. Worst case, it'll be a colossal flop. I'll refund the two people who signed up their money, and I'll record some videos for my mailing list. Mm -hmm.
0: Okay. While we're on the subject of money, uh, Ben asks, and I had a similar question about travel expenses how do you manage that do you, does your client pay them do you or do you just cover them yourself um etc how, how do you handle that
1: so domestically in israel i don't charge anyone for travel mm-hmm. um i mean Israel's a small country so uh, the like the um I mean, the farthest i go is Naharia, which if i were to drive there would be like maybe two hours maybe um i typically take the train and then I take either a bus or a taxi from the train station to the client. So it's like three and a half hours in each direction, like granted, but I'm working on the train for two and a half of those hours. So it's fine with me. And I charge them a surplus um, just because of the, the distance, not because of the travel costs, mm-hmm. but they're like, Oh, you poor thing. You traveled so far because they think like, this is really far and they've never been to America. Yes. <laughs> like I know it's like a joke for everyone who grew up in America. It's like, that's a regular commute. Um, but in terms of actually, uh, and, and usually I'll ask them for, uh, parking. If I drive my car, mm-hmm. uh, like if my wife, my wife and I, we have one car, and so like whoever has the car that day, sometimes I'll drive. So I'll ask them for parking, and they'll almost always give me free parking there. Mm-hmm. Um, traveling abroad is a different story altogether, um, and there are different ways to handle it. One is so when I go to China, um, I'm going through a training company, and they handle it all. So um, I tell them I like to fly on Turkish. Lots of points of Turkish, and I really like the airline. So I uh, approve the hotels that I'm in but typically it's hotels I've been in before because I've been to like Beijing and Shanghai, I've been to a whole lot of times, so I know where I want to be. And I tell them I want to be walking distance from where I'm teaching so that um, I don't have to deal with traffic, subway, and so forth. Um, So they take care of 100% of that, like that I don't have to worry about. The total other end of the scale is I would have to pay for it on my own. I've actually never had that um, and had to build in my price. I had a training company in the US that wanted me to do some training And at the last moment I asked them, so how much do you give me for, for travel? And they're like, what do you mean? That has to be built into your price. So I said, (laughs) bye-bye, um, um, in the middle. And what I think is more typical is what I've done with Cisco when I've traveled abroad, which is they have a standard scale and they say, if your course is, I think it was like, if your course is four days long, then we give you, I think it's $2,400 for flight and hotel and expenses.
0: So Almost I dis- sort of a per diem or something. Yeah. Precisely.
1: Okay. And so like, as, as I've described to people like, so if I want to swim to Belgium and sleep on the streets, then I pocket <laughs> all the money. Um, instead, like, you know, I'm just kind of a cheapskate. So I stay in a cheap hotel and I get a cheap flight and then I got a little extra. Um, but you know, people who have more lavish tastes uh, could, you know, spend more.
0: Okay. Okay. Great. Hugo asked uh, whether you see online courses as competition. Um, surely Reuben, despite your brilliance, you're not the first person to think of a, like a Python course. <laughs> so there's, there's competition, <laughs> there's alternatives. And I would expand that just a little bit. I think that's a great question. I would just add on to, onto it by saying, uh, do you see companies using stuff like Udemy or very low cost delivered online training as some kind of alternative? Or do they say, well, you know, that sounds kind of expensive, Reuben. You, we can get the same thing from Udemy for whatever, <laughs>
1: Yeah, so um, they sort of say that. So I, um, most of these companies now have subscriptions to Safari, Plural Slide, and so forth for their employees. Um, I don't think any company has ever said to me, why should we pay for you when our people can use these other services? Instead, they'll say, we don't want an intro course. We want an advanced course because the intro stuff they can do online. So um, what happens is, I show, this just happened with me uh, at Arm actually. So I showed up to give an advanced Python course. And I discovered that, first of all, like, my habit is I always go around the room, and ask people's names, which I might remember. And more importantly, quite frankly, what is their background? And that allows me to judge whether they're really in the right course and how much people are lying. And so like, we went around the room, and two thirds of the people were like, yeah, I watched the plural site intro to like you know Python course or Linda or whatever it is, mm-hmm. and I really haven't used it very much. So I knew like there was no way these people could do an advanced Python course, um, and so we we changed it to be a basic one. In fact, like it was very clear we had to be basic. And afterwards, they were like, wow, we did stuff here we never ever talked about in the Linda course. Um, so first of all, you have to offer really good value. Second of all, you can go deeper into these basic subjects. And third of all, and here's the, like, sort of the third and fourth things. Interaction is key, and you being physically present is key. Um, if you're just lecturing to them, yeah, doing something online is going to be the same value. Don't just lecture to them. Talk to them. Interact with them. Answer their questions. And that is worth so much. And online courses, like today, I finished a WebEx course like for Cisco in Europe. So like they claim officially Webex is the same as doing person. It's not. Like it's not. It's good. It's even pretty good, but there's a way bigger value in being there person. Like when people have bugs, I can go to their computer and debug it with them. I don't have to say, "Well, paste it into the chat." Some companies are convinced by this. Um, I would say most are. Um, some com- some companies need convincing. Like this company I taught at like a week, uh, a month or two ago. We're also show up to teach advanced Python. Oh, what do you know? The people aren't advanced. Um, The training manager said, Oh, if I'd known that really your intro course is meant for people with up to nine months of experience. Oh, I see. This is not really as basic as I thought we would have ordered this course to begin with. Mm -hmm. So you just got to shine also, right? Like these things online are rarely going to be that great and that exciting. Be exciting, be funny, or, or, or just try to be funny like me. And like, it's usually good enough.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Got it. Okay. So, in the, in the eyes of the training manager, it sounds like they do see a distinction and they do see yes. additional value in ha- having someone there in the classroom.
1: Yes, yes. Okay. Look, I, 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 ta- I remember I once went to Romania to teach a course in uh, advanced Python there for HP. Um, and I show up, and once again, like two-thirds of people, they say, oh, we've heard Python's a really great language. So I go to the training manager. I say to her, listen, there's no way that we can do an advanced course here. She said, ignore them. Ignore them. Only teach the advanced people because we have what they call like HP University or something. We have online courses. We do not bring people in from abroad for intro courses, period. Huh. Um, and by the oh the, flips, the flip side of that, oh, this is the, like, so going to China, everything is fun in China. Um, so always, always, always there. We have to call it advanced Python because once again, they don't bring people from abroad for basic courses and always. Three quarters of people say, I've heard Python's a nice, nice language. So okay. we just do the very Chinese thing, which is we lie. We call the okay. advanced Python course, and I give them the basic Python course, and everyone turns out happy.
0: Okay. It's like uh, ladies' dress sizes here in the U.S. Have, <laughs> you know, they have cooper- progressively changing the numbers. Okay, so um, Stephen asked a really good question. Do you think it would be – actually, Reuben, is it okay if we go over? Um, I want to – just keep asking, hammering you through questions. Can we go another 30 minutes or so?
1: We, we can go as long as we want. Okay. I'm, I'm totally, I'm totally set.
0: Awesome. Okay. So Steven asks, do you think it would be beneficial to basically add, a- let me back up. So you framed how you would organize the courses primarily in terms of subject matter, like Python versus Rails or data science on Python versus basic introduction to Python, that's, um, you know, that's defining it based on the technology platform. Would you further scope it to application to a specific industry, perhaps, you know, Python training for media companies versus marketing agencies. Do you see any benefit in Uh doing that?
1: Maybe, maybe. Look, I definitely have found like my, my Python for system administrators course which is basically all the stuff about files and networks that I couldn't fit into any of my other courses. Um, I, like, I created that and people seem pretty happy with it because that's what they want. Like, they see, oh, this is for me. Right. I have never tried it for different industries. I have to assume that it would be of interest to them. The question is though, how many companies are there? So, so like in the data science world, my right, data science and machine learning are everywhere now. If you were to say, I'm gonna do data science for advertising companies, or for, like, uh, I don't know, uh, um, you know, retailers or for manufacturers, I see that as sort of having a big enough uh, potential market. But like Python for media companies, I don't know if that that like intersection is large enough to justify a course that you could really sort of teach on a, enough times. Mm-hmm. Right? The, the profit here is being able to teach a course 10, 20, 30 times without too much change. If every time you do a course, you have to go through that creation process that's very expensive, time-consuming,
0: and frustrating as well. Yeah, that's that's always, I think, the litmus test for specializing is: does it yield additional value? So it sounds like it, it, the, the the sort of business case for specializing your courses to a particular industry might be a little iffy.
1: Right, right. Just it depends on the industry. Um, yeah. What I what I have sometimes told people is, my, in my experience, like you know, teaching X for people who know Y. Um, is not a bad way to go. Mm-hmm. So, like, if you know, like, you know, so for example, uh, you know, JavaScript for Python developers, or mm-hmm. JavaScript for Java developers, something like that. Mm-hmm. I think that has a lot of potential because you have a large audience that wants to learn something new. Uh-huh. Um, whether you consider that an industry, I'm not sure, but um, but that that might have more direction there.
0: Yeah, that that would call that an audience because it could certainly cut mm-hmm. across different industries. On the subject of class size, Ben asks about if there's a minimum attendance or we're going to cancel this course if we don't have X number of people uh, show up. Uh, I'm also curious, you know, when I was doing training in uh, Microsoft System Administration stuff, they always capped the class size at 16 people. You have a background in learning science. Is there, you know does does it become ineffectual at a certain class size what are your thoughts on all of that
1: my reason for keeping the class size small um is twofold first of all i've had big classes i think it was like hp we once had like 40 people stuffed into a room like sardines for me to teach a ruby class and it was insane like people were not um again israelis tend to ask lots of questions it was very loud i didn't get through all the material it was just bad all around um and that's when i realized okay i gotta cap it and where am i gonna cap it yeah, 16 seems like a good number. Like Truthfully, I could have said 20, but it seems sort of arbitrary. 16 seemed good. So first of all, from a, a learning perspective, I want to be able to interact as much as possible with my students. And so I keep feeling like 16 is a good cap because above that, I just won't have the interactions. I can't, when they're doing an exercise, if they need help, and they don't always need help. Like, so sometimes they can just check my email or Facebook or whatever. But if they do need help, I, I have to be able to run around and help them and otherwise too many people. Um, there's also, there's a business reason to cap it as well, which is if they can stuff as many people into a room as they want, then they will do that, and then you're, you're gonna have fewer classes. And so when I say maximum 16, so Sandisk, they're like, well, we have another 16 people who want a course, we'll just have to open another course. I think to myself, right, that's why my schedule is full through next year, because you know how many courses you're gonna want. Um, so so it's, it's, it's good for business. Um, right. In terms of minimums, so if you charge a daily rate, you want to set a maximum and the company wants to set a minimum. If you're charging a per person rate, it's swapped where you're going to want to set a minimum and they're going to want to set a maximum. So, I mean, Cisco typically has a minimum of like six, seven people per class that below that they'll just cancel it. And the, the rule is if they cancel with less than two weeks to go, they pay me 50% that has literally never happened because they're really on top of things. But there were some other companies, Apple for one, where I said to them, so I'm coming tomorrow to teach, right? And they said, oh, no. (laughs) This was before I learned to put a cancellation policy in my proposals. I now have that, which is like what Cisco does to me, which is two weeks before you pay. So I actually, two weeks ago, Sandex called me up and they said, oh, we didn't really prepare very well. And the next like tomorrow, Half, the, half of your students are gonna be out like on a fun day from work, and the other half are doing a fair, like an idea fair at work, we will pay you for that day, um, and then we're gonna order another day. So I was like, sweet, <laughs> I, get, I, get, I get paid for catching up on email. Um, but the only time that I've had a crazy small number, two times both of Cisco, one was, uh, and both times I guess with my Git course, one was it was an online course, and people just like don't show up to online courses. So I had eight people who were supposed to show up. So it was already small. The first day, like, four showed up. And then, like, I think the second day, one showed up. Like, it was, it was absurd. Um, and something similar happened in person where just so many people canceled so late that two people showed up to the course. But that's rare. And, and that actually is, I think, less effective because I want to have a bunch of people who can talk and explain to each other and discuss things.
0: On that subject of contracts and payment, you said... One time things, you know, didn't go well. There was talk of you paying back some of the fee, I suppose, to the company. Was that baked into their contract or was that something they kind of pulled out of their back pocket or how did that?
1: I'm sure it is there and I'm sure I should have noticed it earlier. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I, I really, it never even occurred to me. It honestly never occurred to me. Also, I was sort of blown away. Like I gave that course twice actually. Um, and this was like, they came to me and said, you teach Python. We have this testing system in Python. We need two teams to learn it. One in England and one in India. Can you do online training for them? I was like, absolutely, yes. So I spent a lot of time preparing and learning it. So the group in England, basically, they all knew this technology, just not in Python. Uh-huh. So they were bored to tears by what I was teaching them because I figured it was all new for them. The second group in India didn't know Python at all. So here I like prepared for their group, which was second. And I yeah. beefed it up and I got horrible, horrible reviews from both groups. I will not be teaching that course again if it has anything to do with me or the people who ordered it. Um, and that's what I learned about this sort of payback policy. Luckily, they look at average scores, yeah. right? So on average, I teach enough courses at Cisco. I mean, scores are very high in general. And so they were like, look, we'll forgive you. You make us look okay, right? Because my job is to make the training manager look good to her
0: boss. Okay. <laughs>
1: um, and so I do that enough that they were willing to be forgiving, but I don't know how flexible they could be.
0: Okay. So let's talk about, um, y- you've named companies that are like household names in the tech world, you know, Apple, Cisco, et cetera. Do you work with smaller companies? This is based on a question from Ivan. What percentage oh, sure. of work do you find with those giant companies versus let's just say, mid-sized companies, um, you know, 20 to uh, 500 or a thousand head count. And is it worth going after those smaller companies or even startups? Um, And uh, Ivan, if you want to pop on and ask follow-up questions, that's fine. Look, it's really convenient to work with big companies,
1: right? Like Just because they're going to order a ton of work, there's no debate over the payment, it 's like it 's like this infinite stream of work look cisco 's having problems nowadays, like they 've been slicing and slicing and slicing their headcount in Jerusalem, so whereas like I was there literally two three weeks out of a month teaching now like i 'm there once every two to three months, and even then the numbers are are sad so you don 't want to have like these whale clients uh, that people talk about sometimes where you 're totally dependent on them, you want to have a mix that said, if you have three four big companies, each of them was coming to you for you know, four, five, six courses a year, you are set. Um, Look, smaller companies contact me. They call me and I'm very happy to work with them. Um, They don't even always argue about money because they might be smaller, but that doesn't mean they're less profitable. Um, And so I don't necessarily go after them. I'm very happy to work with them. But I realize that I'll do a course with them once a year, twice a year at most, Um, that they're just so small that they can't really offer the ongoing revenue that I would otherwise get. Um, I mean, there's, I this cr- there's this great company uh, called MyHeritage, based here in Israel, where they do uh, genealogical stuff. I actually bought their software. I was so impressed with the people I was over. It is super, super cool. In any event, like they have money. <laughs> do they have money? Um, and, but they don't have that many people, right? Let's face it, how many people do you need to run a genealogical site? So, um, so they invited me to do a Python course. That went great. And I would literally not go back there again, except that they heard I could also teach a Ruby course. And I was like, fine, I'll go there, I'll teach a Ruby course, why not? Um, but if I'm invited back once more than that in the coming year, I'll be shocked.
0: Okay, okay, so um, do you notice other differences in their behavior in terms of how they buy training? Um, or is this just kind of a scaled down version of the big, big boys?
1: yeah yeah so i went to this company i don't remember what they're called they'll help me for that but like they do like dental x-ray software Uh you know talk about niching right and so they needed a python course so literally all the developers who had to do with like devops and analytics came in they're like two totally different groups they all came in they heard my course and the the training manager who brought me in. so they do have a training manager of some sort um, I, am assuming she's part-time or does other things also, but she said, oh yeah, I used to work at SanDisk or I was, had a friend who worked there and heard, like heard about you. So it's a scaled down version, but it's, it's so much word of mouth. Um, okay. and for me to get to them, otherwise, I don't think would have happened so easily.
0: Got it. So continuing that same line of questioning, Dave asks, what are your thoughts on doing paid webinars? Maybe you might call them workshops to individuals as an on-ramp to, uh, Getting companies interested sort of a variation of that backdoor thing you talked about. Well,
1: um, that was my strategy, um, and it has so far not paid off. Um, okay. So I have this mailing list to which I send—I know about six thousand people on my mailing list, which I send every week—and um, I get really warm, nice messages back from people on the list. So I know that people are reading it, mm-hmm. um, and I even sent an explicit message to the list saying, "Hey, if you like what I'm doing here." Why don't you invite me to your company? Mm -hmm. I got one message from Brazil saying, we love you, but you're too expensive and far. I got a message. I actually got a call. I spoke to a company in New York Mm -hmm. where maybe possibly something would pan out, but she was just sort of testing the waters Mm. and nothing else. So, so goal number one of the mailing list, get me into lots of places where I will do training so far, not so good. Mm -hmm. goal number two is let me teach individuals so i um i had some holes in my schedule over the last few months and i taught exactly the same material that i teach well i I cut it down because like doing a four-day course online like people have to be insane and they don't have the money so so i decided to carve out different topics Mm -hmm. so i did like a four-hour five-hour course online course on functional programming python another four five-hour course on objects in python and I advertised it to my list as, wow, you can get the same training live as I do for companies. Bad news. <laughs> Bad news. And the reason is I then surveyed my list about three weeks ago. And I asked them, what time zone would be good for you? Like, and I gave them all the options. And then the final option was, forget the time zone. I only want recorded courses. I don't want them live. 70% of the people on my list said they, want li- they don't want live courses. Now I know why no one bought my live courses. So... <laughs> Uh, I will be doing recorded courses, and yeah, it's going to be the same stuff basically, but broken down for a more sort of web friendly home friendly thing mm-hmm. um I think based on the size of my list and I think based on people's interest in response by survey, I'll be able to sell a bunch of those, but it's an open question. Got it,
0: very interesting, okay. I haven't asked about contract stuff. I think we touched on that enough that it's it's probably a pretty good answer to that um. Sounds like you have a contract in place every time there's
1: uh, Well, sort of, sort of. I'll just expand on that a little bit, which is yeah. I send a proposal to companies. And okay. the proposal says, um, you know, I'll be teaching on this day. And here are, my, here are my requirements. So, like, you know, my requirements are you give me a parking space and internet access and a lunch ticket at your cafeteria um, and a whiteboard and a projector. So, like, things just sort of logistics. And if you cancel two weeks in advance. So that's a proposal. That's not a contract. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um and then they send me a purchase order. And a purchase mm-hmm. order is basically them giving me a contract saying, yeah, we agree to pay you. So, and that's all I do. Like, I, I, don't have, I, don't, I don't have to then deal with contracts and negotiation and all that other stuff as I did with development. It just, like, goes out the window.
0: Oh, nice. And that's even the case with, with your big household name companies.
1: Especially with them. Especially, okay. like, they, they, they live and die by purchase orders. And, in fact, in my invoice, they say, you must put your purchase order number. Um, IBM. Ah, IBM. Like the, 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 still the king of bureaucracy folks, truly impressive. Um, So they, I I just sent them an invoice uh, like tonight for something I did about two weeks ago. Um, And I I saw then on their note, they said, and you must get the training manager to provide a letter saying that you did deliver the services that you're invoicing us for. So I emailed her. I was like, please give me this letter. I'm sure it's like a standard form, but most of the time you don't even need that. Just if you're on the purchase order, then it's fine.
0: Great. Okay. So uh, I think we touched on Ben's question, which was something about would you deliver the same content online versus uh, in person? But I think we can – I've got maybe one or two kind of follow-up questions there. So you've mentioned a couple not great things about – you said WebEx training, which is essentially what you – something like this, right? Yeah. Yeah, People not showing up, difficulty with, you know, actually being helpful for people versus being present in person. So, I mean, is that basically what you've learned that the online training sucks and <laughs> you want to do it in person or what have you learned about that?
1: Look, so I think online training is inferior to in-person training, mm-hmm. um, but I don't think it's inherently bad. Yeah. Um, look, the fact is, you know, I taught this course over the last four days and people seem to get a lot out of it. And, but like, you have to be more sort of active, alive. Um, if you are just showing slides, it's like yeah, when I was in elementary school and we still have film pro- films and projectors, like beep, show the next slide. If you're doing that, you're putting the people to sleep and or they're just gonna be checking Facebook the whole time and ignoring you. Okay. Um, if you make it interactive, if you give them lots of exercises, if you ask them, check if they have questions and so forth all the time, you can make the online experience good, maybe even very good, but it's not gonna be outstanding.
0: Okay, okay. Uh, Great. Uh, Dave asks, you mentioned exercises. How much of of the class do you spend lecturing versus letting people work on their own? This kind of relates to a conversation you you and I have had on the freelancer show. Um, I've noticed every time I've approached some kind of training situation, I will try to pack too much in, (laughs) in terms of content. Cause there's this anxiety of like, Oh, what if they don't learn enough? What if I don't ha- deliver enough value, whatever. So can you talk about what you've seen in terms of that? Yeah.
1: So, um, my, my, what I've said for a while now is every year with each of my classes, I remove content and increase exercises and people are more satisfied. And I was shocked by this. Cause I also, I was like, I mean, I, I remember looking back at one of my syllabi from my intro Python class. It was only three days. And it is like, you gotta be kidding me! I could not possibly, <laughs> possibly, had been serious in offering this many topics in this few, this little time. It what, was just like what was, our, so what was the ratio?
0: Was it like twice as much content or three? I mean, I was it...
1: three to four times as much content as I do okay. now. Like wow. three or four times as many topics. Yeah. Um, some of which I've removed entirely from my Python classes. Yeah. Like so, I I broke out an entire two day course in regular expressions. Right, and I, I included like an hour in my intro Python course. Like, come on, how could this possibly be useful to someone? Um, so, increase exercises, decrease content, um, and the more I do that, the more satisfied people are. Now, you clearly need to talk, you clearly need to lecture, you clearly need to introduce topics and things. Um, I, the number I throw out is about thirty percent in exercises. Um, in my intro to Python for non-programmers, it's probably higher. It's definitely higher. I'm guessing it's like 50% exercises mm-hmm. um, and, and people want that. They want mm-hmm. to have what I call controlled frustration, um, which is like, it's not, their work is not depending on it. They know that they're like, they're sweating and they're like, it's hard, but they're in a classroom environment where they know it's like, nothing depends on it. And if they need help, they can get help. Mm. Um, so, so I even felt guilty today. Like, I, so I taught this, you know, Python for Non-Programs class for the last four days with tons and tons and tons of exercises, some of which took them a long time. And like, I'm sure they feel incredibly frustrated because like they struggle on this for 30 minutes and I come and blah, 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 see, it's only four lines of code, right? So like, but look, that's sort of the nature of the business, right, I've been doing this for a while. And um, I was sure that they would be furious that here I was like, not talking, not doing anything, watching videos, right? Like doing something (laughs) when they're not asking for help and here they're struggling, but no, people were so, happy and satisfied to be given the practice and the discussion um, it's it's crucial and it's also crucial in my mind not only to give them the exercises to give them the solutions to walk them through the process of the solutions that process is even more important than the solution itself Um, sometimes in the in the education world we call it a think aloud right? Describe to me how you would solve this. Mm-hmm. And so I do a think aloud as I solve the exercise each time afterwards. I say, Oh, but we could try this and we could try this. And we could try this. Sometimes I purposely walk into a corner with bugs and that's so that they will start to internalize that thinking process, which is the best thing they can get out of the course as far as I'm concerned. Mm. Very nice.
0: So let's talk a little bit about your quote unquote product improvement process. Um, You, you improve all your courses over time. How do you do it? What's, I mean, what's, what's the input? Uh, How, how drastic are the changes every time? How how do you do that part?
1: So there are different kinds of improvements. Um, So sometimes I just see people don't get it. Mm -hmm. Like I, I, I explain something people don't understand like uh, functional programming is this like set of techniques that are really hard for people to understand. Like there's a reason why they were tried in the fifties and sixties. And as soon as the objects came around, people abandoned functional programming. I mean, I think functional programming is beautiful and cool and amazing. and I love teaching it, but I, I also love the looks on people's faces. That's like, you gotta be kidding me if this is the way you're trying to do things. Um, and so I, I have spent a lot of time trying to think about how to present and how to describe it. And sometimes I just hit gold, right? Sometimes I just, have a phrase, an idea, and I see it works and then I latch onto it and I use it. Um, Whenever I see that people are asking the same question across multiple classes at roughly the same time, I sort of get ahead of them and like I see it on their faces like I've answered the question just as they were about to answer it. Um, And that's because I sort of, you've got to pay attention to what they're saying, pay attention to what they're asking, pay attention to things they don't care about, right? So there's a part of the whole functional programming thing I, I would teach all like I teach my intro Python class about lambda, which is like how to do anonymous functions. Definitely a cool thing. Definitely not crucial for day to day Python work. So I just dumped it from my intro class and put it in my advanced class. And you know what? This guy didn't fall out. Like fall fall, out, you know, fall fall down on me. Like people were still happy, and they're happy to have a more compact view of things. So that's one way to improve it. Pay attention to what they're sort of understanding and understanding. Another way is just not to feel good. Like to feel that it's not working. So if there's something I really want to improve still in my data science class with the machine learning stuff, I need better examples, and more importantly, better exercises. The exercises I give are, I think, good, but they're not over the top, wow, amazing. And because you want to hit that sweet spot of not too hard, not too easy, and interesting. Um, And it's so easy to make them boring or stupid or too hard. Um, and you just keep iterating, like I'm gonna keep, it could be I'll never finish, right? I'm just gonna keep trying to find new new exercises, new things that, that will, will, will be of interest to them. Um, I also say like, I just try, sometimes I try to lark something. So with my Python for Non-Programmers class, I used to give the same intro to dictionaries, hash tables, hash maps, as I gave everyone else, my regular programming course. I realized this was not working. So I tried to break it down, I gave him three different exercises. I was like, wow, this works great. And then I started doing it with my regular Python class. I discovered it worked great there too. So don't be afraid to experiment. The worst case is it won't work, and they're not gonna care. Like like one hour out of a four-day course, they're not gonna remember a hold it against
0: you. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's see got a few questions here um here here's one that i think is relevant to folks i i think some things you have to you can kind of think about and make a decision about uh in the abstract and some things you probably just have to try to know if you're going to like it yeah. um, it's funny you made the connection to stand up comedy which i'm sure is a, probably the perfect example of something you could not get better at without doing it uh, but even if we leave aside getting better, if someone just wanted to know if they were going to be, if they were going to like doing training and they've never done it before, what would you tell them to do? That would be like a little experiment they could do on their own.
1: Again, I, th- I think either webinars or user group meetings are mm-hmm. a good place to start. Um, okay. Cause you're trying to get a pro- or, or speak at conferences. Oh, I forgot, totally forgot about mentioning speaking at conferences. Wow. That's like an obvious one I should mention. Um, Cause you're getting up in front of people you're trying to get some ideas across. Um, It's like a miniature version of a course in many ways. Mm -hmm. Um, And you'll see, now, by by the way, don't judge your interest in training by the first time or two you do this. Uh, Because the first time or two you do it, you're probably gonna hate it anyway or it's not gonna go that well. Give yourself a little bit of time and a few attempts. It could be after like three, four times you say, wow, I thought I hated it and I really do. (laughs) (laughs) then okay like it's not for you not everything has to be right for everyone
0: okay okay great um it sounds like you it sounds like word of mouth is sort of the primary marketing engine by which you might acquire new clients is that true or are there other ways you market your training services on the b2b side particularly is what i'm asking about yeah i
1: I do no marketing now i mean okay none whatsoever and it's kind of shocking to me that it works as well as it does so, I mean, the, the story with me is, so I, I actually, like, when we came back uh, to Israel from uh, Chicago, where I, I, was, I was in grad school for four years, I mean, the whole PhD took 11 years, don't, don't worry, but, like, the actual classwork was four years, then I did a lot of flying back and forth, and I almost literally bumped into someone, I think his car nearly hit me, actually, that I hadn't seen in a while, um, and he said, oh, wait, I should introduce you to this training company. Now, I'd done training off and on, like, I'd always done some training, I found a training company. That's a great way to market myself and I can concentrate on finishing my dissertation. So I spoke to them and I worked with them, I think, for about two years, three years. I did my courses through them. Um, and then I decided it took a long time, a lot of like gut wrenching decision making, and talked to my wife, who was very encouraging. It's like, okay, I'm going to leave them. Now I had the advantage of they had completely forgotten to sign me on a non compete, it completely fell through the cracks. So um, and the straw that broke the camel's back there was I did a, a like a, a um, an open enrollment course at their offices in Tel Aviv, and someone said to me, "Do you know how much we're paying for this course?" I said, "No, how much are you paying for this course?" <laughs> I had no idea, and that's when I found out that they were making like a hundred thousand shekels, which is like twenty five thirty thousand dollars, and they paid me ten percent of that. Oh, I was wow. like, "Whoa!" So I went to the, <laughs> the head of trading there. I said, um, "I deserve more." She said, "Well, you know." our building has a lot of very expensive aspects to it. So like, no,
0: that, was, that, that was her justification for her justification her. was like,
1: <laughs> we, we can't do, it. we have a lot of expenses and no way. So that's, that's when I said, okay, I'm leaving these guys. And I basically timed it so that just before I finished my dissertation, I called them up. I said, I'm out of here. Like now that I'm finishing my PhD, I can go back to doing it on my own. And her question was, well, what did we sign you on the non-compete for? And I said, you didn't. And there was this silence on the other end of the line. She said, oh and so (laughs) i i actually was in touch with people at cisco because i was like there a lot and they recommended me to their training manager Uh and that was the old that was the close i did to marketing i got a call from sandus like a month later two months later and they wanted to know if i was interested in a course i said well you know i'm not with john bryce anymore and they said we know we've all heard (laughs) who who heard who told i really don't know but um people talk people talk a lot and That will be to your advantage if you're good, to your disadvantage if you're bad, of
0: course. Sure, sure. Um, Okay, two more questions, and then I think we'll wrap this sucker up. Um, One question is, do you take a sort of minimum viable product approach to developing curriculum when you're either, if you think back to maybe how you might have done things better the first time around, or if you're launching a new course now, how do you approach that? Do you start real small and build on it or do you build something ambitious from out the gate?
1: No. So like my, my data science course is definitely like the most ambitious thing I've, I think I've ever done in terms of mm-hmm. training um, in part because the subject matter is so vast and the subject matter is really hard. Like mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm trying to like read what I can on data science in my copious free time and like, it's a lot of hard ideas. Yeah. So I make I make the point of people, I'm teaching an intro, right? There's an intro. I can't really go that deep in it. Um, so I started off with it as a two-day course. And I said, okay, I'm going to do... I actually hadn't thought of it as a like MVP kind of thing, but that's a great way to describe it. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So I did it as minimal. And I mean, I made so many mistakes, but I told people. I was very upfront. I taught it at Cisco. I taught some of that material the previous year at PayPal. Mm-hmm. So I sort of got that. And from what I did in webinars and a whole lot of research, I show up at Cisco and I say that basically, this is the first time I'm teaching this class. Um, I really would like to get your feedback and lots of questions. And every question they had, I wrote down mm. and I promised I'd get back to them. I think I did. I hope I did. Uh, if not, <laughs> they're not waiting by, like they're, they're not waiting here for me anymore. It's been a few years, but, um, but I, I realized there was going to be a lot of rockiness that between the two days of the course that night, I more or less pulled an all-nighter looking up questions, trying to figure out things. Um, And so then I realized where the holes were in that minimum viable product. I said, okay, I got to beef up machine learning. I got to beef up X and Y and Z. I got to get rid of this stuff, which no one cares about. Um, And then I was able to keep iterating. And you just keep iterating. And it's going to be, especially on something new, ambitious that you don't know that well or Mm -hmm. uh, as well, um, you just keep iterating
0: hmm I just want to point out for folks who may have not noticed it, uh, transparency about what you do and don't know is not going to kill your career if you're at the beginning stages, right? Like you can say to a group, this is the first time I've done this class, or I don't know the answer to that. I'll get back to you, right? I, I know for me in early on in training that I tried to compensate for that always with disastrous effects, rather than just saying, look, I don't know, uh, sorry, but I'll find out.
1: Yes. Yeah, so, so telling people that I, this was the first time teaching the course, I think that was a good move in part because I had Cisco's back. Like they basically yeah. said, we really want this course. And yeah. they said, it takes three times usually before a course succeeds, we know it's new, we're, we're with you. Yeah. So I basically had very little to lose in telling these students that it was the first time because I knew I had two more chances. And they, mm-hmm. they watched, and the training manager, watched and said, like they didn't watch me teach, but she looked at the score results and she said, okay, I see it's improving, good for you. It's much better than the first two times. Yeah. Um, In terms of saying that you don't know, I 100% agree. Um, And I tell people explicitly, at least 50% of what I teach is based on questions people have asked me. Mm -hmm. Um, Like variable scoping, local variables versus global variables. I never talked about it my first few years in teaching. And then I realized, this is really confusing people. I keep seeing people making mistakes on this subject. So I now have a whole section of my course in which I discuss this, and I really think it helps elucidate things. And if I hadn't like not known how to explain it to people, I would have been stuck. Mm. And I often tell people, oh, I don't know the answer to that. That's my homework. I'll get back to you on it tomorrow. Um, mm. And they are super satisfied when I come back and say, oh, I, I researched this last night, and this is what I found. Mm.
0: Very nice. My well, last question is real tactical. Um, in software development, you have to have a development environment. How much complexity is there in making sure all the students have like a standardized development environment, or are you using virtual machines, or how do you handle that typically?
1: Uh, poorly. So, um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so I probably should get better at that. What I do now is I have a, a standard document I send out saying we're going to be using, and I still use Python 2 with most of my courses just because that's what the companies want. We're gonna be using Python 2.7. Here are installation instructions for your computer to put it okay. on if you don't already have. I want you to install this and this and this. If it does not work for you, first day of class I'll help you out. And I expect the first day during the morning break, usually it's morning break, afternoon break, and lunch break. Morning break I sort of go around to people's computers and I help them out. And the first exercise is deliberately super simple to make sure their environment is working. Um, with my Python for non-programmers class, I'm terrified that things are gonna be hard for them to install. Mm -hmm. And anyway, we use a note. We use what's called the Jupyter Notebook. So I just set up a virtual machine and Mm -hmm. I have it run there and they just use their web browser to go in there. Okay. Um, One of these days, and I've been saying this for a few years, I will be smart enough to set up a virtual machine that people can download and run. And that would definitely be a smarter way to go in many ways. Yeah.
0: I see. Okay. So there is something going on there, but you've been able to have a pretty hands-off approach and it, it basically works. When I say hands-off, I'm coming from this background where when I did stuff for Microsoft, we were setting up these virtual machine environments. They were being QA'd 50 different ways, and it was very labor-intensive. Oh, my God. Oh, my God.
1: (laughs) I had that. So, actually, when I worked with John Bryce, now that I remember, um, when I would do courses on-site with them, so they had an IT manager who had VMs for, like, he had the Reuven VM. Yeah. And so... He would install that on all the machines they had. Oh, they had removable right. hard disks. That's right. And they yeah. would install that on all the machines so that everyone had whatever I wanted. And every year, two years, we would update that VM to some newer version of whatever. Oh. Um, it sounds very attractive in many ways. Truth be told, I mean, I had at a company I was at a few days ago. I can't remember where. Where, like, I said, okay, please install X and Y and Z, and they said, oh, our computers are sort of locked down by the IT department. Uh-huh. Um, so. Oops, I actually do try to send those instructions and other things out a few days ahead of time. Okay. Um, when I get the email addresses of the participants ahead of time, then I do that. And if not, then I just apologize and send it out, and I have them do it like during the morning.
0: Okay. Cool. Okay. Well, Reuven, this has been fantastically helpful. Thank you. Uh, in terms of next steps for folks who are like. I wanna, I wanna try that out. Uh, what would you recommend and how can folks contact you and should they buy a book you sell or you know, just what, what would be those next steps for folks?
1: So in ter- so first of all, let's give it a shot. Like find yeah. something and make it a small topic because uh-huh. always you'd be surprised how much depth there is even in a small topic and give a presentation somewhere and see how you feel about it. And see how you feel if you do a good job, and I hope you will. Like, um, when people come up to you and thank you and say, wow, I never understood X before, but you've explained X really well. Like, it's just a fantastic, fantastic feeling. Um, And and then just build on that. Like, it's basically turning that feeling and that activity into a larger scale business, right? Monetizing it. And if you can explain things, there are companies willing to pay you for it. in terms of stuff that I can offer, so, I mean, I do a, I do a few things. I mean, I have a, a weekly newsletter for trainers called Trainer Weekly. Um, you can sign up. It's also evergreen, so you'll get like the first one. I think I've done also like 50 or 60 of those so far. Um, and I'm still writing it every week, just about every week, and it's, it's fun for me. Um, we have a group on Facebook where, um, uh, where people discuss training. And I'm really pleased, like, I'm very skeptical of Facebook groups as an effective uh, community building tool. And somehow this has actually worked pretty well, in part because people have been very active and, and helpful. Um, and that's also free. You wanna join like Training Weekly, join the Facebook group, that would be fantastic. I do um, coaching for people who are interested in training. And I've helped a number of people um, serve with individual sessions. I tried group sessions, and there just wasn't enough critical mass to do that. Um, Although if all of you join, then I'll be happy to. All right, never mind. <laughs> uh, but, um, but basically, um, I do individual coaching on an hourly basis when people need it. I help people put together proposals, uh, increase how much they make, um, just sort of carve out what should be in a syllabus and what should not, help them come up with exercises and other such things. Um, and if you also just, just want to drop me a line, I tend to be very bad at getting back to people via email quickly because I'm so incredibly overwhelmed with messages from all over the world, which is very heartwarming, but hard to deal with. Um, but please don't let that stop you from contacting me. I will write you back. It might just take a little while. And i love to hear from people who are interested in training. And, and again, give it a shot. Give it a shot. It's, it's, it has been a wonderful, wonderful career move for me. And um, I, I hope you get even half the enjoyment um, and, uh, and income that I do from it, because if so, you'll, you'll be a very happy person.
0: Reuven, thank you again for your insight and, and so generously sharing what you've learned. Really appreciate it. My pleasure.
1: It. My pleasure, Philip. Great to talk to you. Great to see all, all, all of you folks here, those of you who shared your picture and are not trying to stay anonymous. And mm-hmm. uh, I hope to hear from uh, somewhere, all of you in the near future.
0: Awesome. Okay, well, bye for now, everybody. See you around online. Bye, all.